I just want to get by my day. I want the people around me to get by their day. What is so what is so wrong about that? If you if people get mad at me for wanting to be a decent human being, then that's a problem within them. That means they have a certain issue, not me. If I'm a person who cares and not who advocates for like nonviolence and wants things to like just run smoothly, but also believes in the liberation of Palestinian uh, people and also wants both like Jews and Palestinians to just live in peace because I have like I have Jewish friends, I have Israeli friends, you know, and I love them and they love me. Why can't I just live in with them and like not have this sort of hatred or tension? You know, so if that makes me a shitty person, excuse me for my profanity, or it makes me an um, insensible type of human being because I'm not only standing in solidarity with one side, then honestly, I think there's a problem with you because why do you not, why are you not being a decent human being? Like, where's your humanity? everyone and welcome back to from the Yarra River to the Mediterranean Sea. You are joined as always by me. My name is Hannah. I'm joining you from Nam, also known as Melbourne in Australia. And you will shortly hear from Itai who will join you from Jerusalem. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge that I am recording this podcast on unceded Wurundjeri land and I pay my respects to elders past and present. This was and always will be Aboriginal land. So there's not really a preamble to this episode. We are interviewing a Palestinian peace activist, Lana Al-Khalan. She is amazing. I just wanted to give you some quick context around a program that Lana talks about in this episode. It's a program called Tomorrow's Women which is an organization that was co-founded in 2003 by Rachel Kaufman, Deborah Sugarman, and Anayel Harpaz. And together they coordinate peace camps that facilitate dialogue, deep listening, and authentic speaking for young Palestinian and Israeli women. So Lana attended one of these camps and she talks a bit about her experience in this episode. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed recording it. So Lana, I first want to just ask you um, a few background questions before we kind of get into and I mean, we let's see where this podcast episode goes and um feel free to ask your own questions and I kind of, you know, we don't have any agenda. We just want to chat and get to know each other. Um, how would you identify? Would you, are you Muslim? Are you Palestinian? Are you Arab? What's, what, how do you identify? So I, I love this question because um, first and foremost, I was born in the States. I was born in Louisiana, Baton Rouge, and I lived there for eight years before coming um, to Jerusalem. Uh I identify as Palestinian, Muslim, Arab, you know, all three. And then people ask me, okay, but where did the American go? And I say, I don't feel like, okay, I was born in the States, but what it's what runs through my blood. Honestly, that it's what I identify myself with. Um, not a piece of paper. So you speak English, Arabic, and Hebrew fluently? Yes. Wow. Hebrew, not, I wouldn't say fluently, but I would say in the LinkedIn professional level. Yeah. <laughs> in the LinkedIn <laughs> like language professional. That's a really good way to put it. <laughs> I went to an American speaking high school and okay. I did speak a little bit Arabic here and there, but like I wasn't professionally speaking or I wasn't perfect like the people around me. They all like knew Arabic so well and like they would like listen to me and like, you know, they would make fun of the fact that it's like I don't have the same like accent as they do. And I'm sorry, I don't. I was born in the States. I, I, I don't like and I lived there for a while. So obviously my accent's going to be awful and I'm not going to understand the terminology the same way. So it was kind of like it was kind of like I was having my own identity crisis. It's like, am I really Palestinian if I can't uh, mm. like speak the way they do, act the way they do? 
it was all new to me. So I felt like in, in America, I wasn't exposed to my Palestinian culture as much as I should have been. So can I ask you, what makes you feel Palestinian now? Definitely after I joined Tomorrow's Woman. After joining mm, that okay. peace program. Um, when did I realize that being a Palestinian was difficult? Was uh, when we first came back from the, uh, from the States into this country. I was, uh, my mother, of course, as I mentioned, she's from the West Bank. And uh, we were in the car. We went to go see her family in Nablus, which is also Shechem in Hebrew and Nablus in Arabic. Um, and it's located within the West Bank. So uh, she didn't know, or me and my parents, like the whole family basically didn't know that there are rules and regulations for people who live in the West Bank coming into Jerusalem. And so we were at this checkpoint and me and my sisters were just like, three like we were very young i was eight my older sister was nine uh my little sister was like around four or five at the time and she's sitting in the car and then the you know the soldiers they look at my mom and they go like where's her hawiya hawiya which means um where's her id and so my mom's like mm, here you go she, she gives them the green one and they go like uh papers um uh permit permit and my mom's like i don't have a permit like what do you mean and so next thing you know you see like IDF soldiers basically like um, pointing their guns and saying you need to get out of the car. And like we're just three little girls sitting in the back and we're just like, what's going on? What's wrong with our mom? Is there a problem that she's like not like that? She has a green ID and my dad has an, a blue ID and we're still too young to have IDs. <clears throat> and the thing is, is like my my dad had my mom's, I think he has his, my mom's name on his ID as his wife. And he was like saying, she's my wife, she's my wife, she's my wife. And they investigated her for eight hours. And I remember my dad, I remember my dad telling me, your mom might not be able to continue living with us. And to hear that at a young age, it's like, that's when it hit me. I was like, we're in a country where being from the West Bank or being a minority is kind of dangerous that's when it hit me i was like oh so something's going on here at eight years old at eight years old with that one incident like i remember it like it was yesterday because it was like it's scary you know you're eight years old sitting with your sisters your, your little sister's screaming next to you they're taking mama they're taking mama and like um are they gonna arrest her and then we waited outside for eight hours um because she was getting investigated and my dad was like i'll take you guys to your uncle's house you need to go somewhere safe and we're like no we're not going anywhere mm. i'm not going i'm not mm. going anywhere and the like i think the worst part about it was her face when she walked out it was mm. complete horror and i looked at her and i didn't even want to ask what happened to you in there because i was scared mm. even if they did nothing even if they didn't even if they just questioned her she doesn't know hebrew for eight hours? For eight hours. She doesn't know Hebrew. She doesn't know Hebrew. Not a single word. She didn't have her husband next to her. She didn't have anyone. She had to say everything on her own. Like, language is so important. So that type of barrier brings in more anxiety, more pressure. You know? Like, I would, I would hear people speaking in Hebrew around me. And I'd, like, get all curled up and have this like anxiety type of feeling because like what are they saying what are they saying what are they saying even when they stop the bus and they tell me take out your id and then they ask questions in hebrew and i'm like listen i don't speak hebrew help me out here help me help you yeah and i just want to just give some context to, to lana's comment because i don't know if everyone's familiar that in jerusalem you know and i know a lot of our listeners have been to jerusalem but 38 percent of jerusalem is palestinian so that's people like Lana and like Lana, they're not Israeli citizens, even though they live in this city, you know, with people like me. And, um, and you know, I have, you know, I never get asked for my ID. I, I go around Jerusalem all the time because I see look Jewish. It's, it's not something that I, but I know Palestinians ask for their IDs all the time, mainly by, by soldiers or police and mainly for, sensibly for security reasons, because, um, you know, there's, there's a, a lot of Israelis have fear that people may be in Jerusalem that shouldn't be in Jerusalem, um, especially if, they're, if they've come in illegally from, from the West Bank. And so that's why there's always this questioning of IDs. But I think every Palestinian like Lana that I know has 
I would say, a very unpleasant story with Israeli security forces that few um, Jewish Israelis would have those experiences. Mm. Wait, did you just say, Lana, are you, you're an Israeli citizen or you're not an Israeli citizen? No, I'm not an Israeli citizen. I'm considered a resident. I have a blue ID. My siblings all have blue IDs, except for my little brother because he's still young. And my mother has a green ID. And the green IDs are for people who live in the West Bank. It's to basically label like this person is from the West Bank. Yeah, and, and maybe just to give context there. So as a Jewish Israeli, I have a blue ID. And what that means is that when there's elections, I can vote, um, whereas Lana can't vote in, in, in the Knesset elections. And 95% of Palestinians who live in East Jerusalem don't have blue IDs. They only have the, the green IDs, which means that they can't vote in, in our elections, even though the Knesset obviously makes laws that affect the lives of everyone in Jerusalem, East Jerusalem Palestinians can't. And that's because in 1967, when Israel annexed East Jerusalem, it annexed the land, but it didn't annex the people. Um, so theoretically, Palestinians can apply to be Israeli citizens. And as I said, about 5% of Palestinian East Jerusalem residents do have citizenship. But um, the application process is very, very complicated. It takes several years to do. You're not always accepted, um, even if you want it. Uh, a lot of Palestinians don't want it as well. Um, so, you know, that's all the factors of, that's why when you ask someone in Jerusalem, what's your identity, it's super complicated. And then you've got another third of the city, which is Haredi, that, you know, that lives here but doesn't identify as Zionist necessarily, but, you know, supports the country. And then you've got, like, the secular majority, uh, the minority, like, about 30% that lives in South Jerusalem, which is me. So there's, there's really, like, three Jerusalems, a Haredi Jerusalem, Palestinian Jerusalem, and then a secular modern Orthodox Jerusalem. Mm. Wow, this is that's actually new for me because I don't think I realized that there were people like I I know that people in the Palestinians in the West Bank aren't Israeli citizens and I I understood that and same as in Gaza but I don't think I actually comprehended that it's also in Jerusalem like I I didn't realize and I assume we're talking about East Jerusalem is that where you live Lana Yeah yeah in East Jerusalem so how can I just ask either of you how many Palestinians do you think are living in Israel that aren't citizens and how many Palestinians are living in Israel that are citizens? I think Itai should answer that. I think he knows so, the statistics better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so in, in Israel proper, there are 9 million people. I don't have the exact number in front of me, but about 7.2 million, I think, are Jewish and 1.8 million are Arab. Um, most of those Arabs identify as a mixture of Palestinian citizen of Israel, Arab, Israeli, Arab, you know, like there's various terms. And then, um, so they're all citizens of Israel, they can all vote, they can all run for office, they can have, you know, access to all jobs, services, all of that sort of thing. And uh, the Palestinians in the West Bank are not citizens of Israel. Um, and then the Palestinians in East Jerusalem, which is about approximately 350,000 people, uh, as I mentioned, uh, not citizens of Israel, unless they apply to be, but it's very um, difficult. Mm. But very, very few Palestinians in East Jerusalem call themselves Israeli, mm. whereas an Arab that lives in you know, Haifa or Akko or you know, a place like that would, would identify as Israeli. Mm, interesting. And that's, and that's also got to do with the status of Jerusalem because obviously for, for an Israeli like me, we consider Jerusalem to be the capital of Israel and for Palestinians, Jerusalem is the capital of Palestine. And so that's why Jerusalem, and, and also Jerusalem has all the holy places as well. So Jerusalem is probably the most disputed city in the entire area between the river and the sea for that. Mm. Lana, would you say, when you say like, you know, when someone says, where do you live? Do you say like in, you know, when we started, you said, I live in Jerusalem. Yeah. But would you say I live in Israel or would you say I live in Palestine? It depends on who's in front of me. Believe it or not, if I'm if I'm speaking to someone who, and I think it's not because I'm scared, it's because I just don't want to disrespect them. You know, like but what I do you feel, what do you feel? I, I I do I do like I I say Palestine. Like if it comes back to me, like I remember yeah. when I traveled, when I went to Tomorrow's Woman and I traveled to um, Santa Fe, New Mexico, 
people would ask us on the street, like, oh, where are you girls from? Where are you girls from? You know, Americans are very curious. I could, I could tell you because I'm one myself. Um, and uh, they would ask, like, oh, where are y'all from? And we'd be like, oh, we're from Palestine. And they go, like, where's that? And that was mm. like a slap in the face. So I was like, Palestine? And then they go, like, never heard of it. I was like, Israel? They're like, oh, Israel! And I'd be like, oh, Mm. okay you know like it break my heart a little and so from from then on out I would just say Jerusalem do you know where Jerusalem yeah, is same. everyone knows where Jerusalem is everyone knows one of the most holiest places in the world with the most holiest sites you don't have to get into a political dialogue about it if you say Jerusalem they'll leave you alone yeah and usually, just, you know, if I tell people Palestine, like there was one time where I did say it in front of people and they told me, oh, screw you, it's Israel or, and you know, like I was like, oh, dude, chill, chill, we're, we're, you have your idea, you can call it Israel, that's fine with me, I'm not getting mad, I call it Palestine, that's what I believe. There's no need for the, for the profanities, you know, so it's, so I just say Jerusalem. But Hannah, I will tell you this, and I'm sorry if it comes off a little weird, but like, I always say it's ironic that one of the holiest places in the world and yet there's the most conflict. I, I find it so ironic where they say it's like the land of peace and holiness and no peace or holiness goes down here. It's very controversial because of all the different religions and people fighting for like um, living in certain places. It's it's ironic. It's, it's ironic. I, I would say it's worse than ironic. It's a bloody tragedy. Like, yeah. you know, I often think of like the the people that this is holy for, you know, Abraham, Ibrahim, you know, or, or the prophet Muhammad or, or Jesus, Isa, you know, like I think if they could look down from heaven and see, you know, what the followers of their faith are doing in their, in their honor, in their memory, in their, you know, to make this place holy the way, you know, we've divided and we fight over all holy places and the walls and the checkpoints. And, you know, I, mm. it, as a teacher of religion, like I know what, the Quran says about Jerusalem. I know, I know what. Um, I mean, the Quran specifically doesn't doesn't mention Jerusalem, but it, you know, talks about you know Al Makadis Al Aqsa. You know, like mm-hmm. a, of the yeah. holy the holy place and the, and the Prophet Muhammad's journey here and and you know rising to heaven from the Haram al Sharif. And I obviously know Jerusalem's not not in the Torah, but it's in the Tanakh many times. And I I feel like you know with all those traditions that we that we have about this place like religion should be this thing that brings us together because all of our religions talk about this place being peace and compromise and you know we even have a festival called Sukkot where Jerusalem is a place where we make 70 sacrifices for all the nations because it's a city of peace and then yeah I feel like we need to do better you know on a civil level but we also need to do better on a religious level to understand our religious traditions in a way that can allow us to share this. I want to just go back Lana like you were saying, you know, it's it's the holiest place in the in the world for for so many Jews and for so many Muslims, but there's so much violence. Yeah. So what do you mean when you say the violence? Like what what do you see? Like what does that mean to you? The violence. If I want to think of the violence, the first thing that occurs to my mind is like the war that broke out in May 2021. Uh, I think Itai remembers. Mm-hmm. Um, so first and foremost, I need to like clarify the fact that I I am an advocator of peace. I mean I don't I don't like violence in any way, shape or form. I'm not a fan. <laughs> um uh I don't uh like the concept of war. Uh, especially I feel like someone once told me like war is blind and like the second they said that I was like oof that's that's heavy. Mm. You know? And um I think what uh when I think of the violence, I think of, okay, the stabbings that happen, like when people, like when mm. a Palestinians uh, stab um, Israeli civilians or like the, the soldiers, and then you have soldiers who harass and beat up or, or imprison uh, Palestinian youth or women in front of Damascus Gate, um, or sometimes even the elderly, like I've seen videos. <clears throat> and I see all of this and it's like, it's like, what like like why you know and then i go like okay lana you know why like like why are you asking the question it's because 
It's because it's two people, it's two, it's two nations that want to live in this land, that, that want to go by their day, but it's like they're threatened by the existence of the other. And it's like, okay. Mm. And they see that the only solution is to attack, be violent. Um, basically, it's like show them who's boss. It's a situation where it comes off as let's show them who's boss. And it's like, mm. but your let's show them who's boss has such a negative effect in the long term. Like a Palestinian who would go commit a stabbing like you end up being martyred, you end up becoming killed, like you end up dying, and then they take away your parents' IDs, and then they demolish your home, and it's like, look, look, look at the dom. I don't want to say domino effect, but it's just like one thing after the other after the other, and then <clears throat> you have if an Israeli soldier who harasses a kid, he goes, and um, it brings up this up uproar of like other Palestinians who see the videos or. They see the um, the fight, and then they go like, "Oh, this is, they did this to him," and like we need to like share, like you know, like we need to retaliate, and then they end up retaliating with it's like a loop. A soldier will do something. Palestinian wants to retaliate by stabbing. The stabbing ends up leading to that kid getting killed, and then the, the like the soldiers go like, "Okay, now we need to retaliate," but it's back and forth. It never stops. Never stops. Mm. Like I don't think this. This country has ever seen a peaceful day. Mm. And for a, as a Palestinian since 1948. I, I want to talk about 1948. I want to talk about October 7th. I want to talk about um, the response that's happened since. But before we get there, I want to ask you just like a more of a core question. Like, why do you think you are the way you are? Because you're, you work in a peace organization. You, you're, you know, even the way you're speaking now, like you, you want peace, like, why do you think you're like that? You're living in a country that doesn't recognize you as a citizen. You moved from America where you were born there. So I assume you had American citizenship. Yeah, I do. Yeah. You moved. Yeah. So you moved to Palestine where, yeah, you don't have the same rights as other people living there. Like, why do you think you think the way you do? Um, I think I'm the way I am. First of all, I have to give major credits to my parents you know um even though what 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 happened to my mom and everything my parents always raised me to respect everyone regardless of um race religion ethnicity sexuality respect is respect you gotta respect them so um i usually choose to like always be kind and I was raised in America under this rule. We call it the golden rule that says treat others as you want to be treated. You know, like that was our golden rule. We said it every morning after we punched the flag. <laughs> um, and so it was something that I really, yeah, it was something that I really grew up with, you know. And um, because I spent the first eight years of living here not really understanding, like so from eight to 16 years old, I didn't really understand the whole Palestinian-Israeli conflict. I didn't understand what was going on. It wasn't something we discussed in high school at all. You know, um, we're in East Jerusalem. We don't really interact with um, we don't interact with Jewish Israelis. Uh, never understood it for not even for a second. And um, uh, until I had this one teacher, and her name is Lisa uh, Tal Talisnik, I think. Um, she's a journalist. She's amazing. Uh, she's Jewish. Uh, she's a big advocate for peace, and she's actually the first Jewish person that I actually interacted with. And she taught me all about Judaism and the religions and everything. And she's such a big advocate for peace, and she's such a sweetheart. And she literally was the only person, like, she was one of those teachers who would look at me and be like, you're going somewhere. She's like, I have high hopes for you. And I still stay in contact with her. So um, then I joined Tomorrow's Woman, and... Um, when I, when I listened to the Israeli women's perspective, like the, the girls that were with me, I listened to their perspective and they listened to ours. And keep in mind, it wasn't easy. Nothing about dialogue between you and the other side is easy. Like it, like we were there for three weeks. The camp was three weeks. It wasn't until after a week and a half where we opened up about the conflict. 
or after two weeks. Mm. Why? Because they needed to make sure we built some sort of trust. We built some sort of like, uh, bear, like we broke some barriers, uh, ice breaking, all of that for a good two weeks before we could open up such a heavy topic. And keep in mind, when we opened up this topic, we weren't allowed to bring in politicians. We weren't allowed to bring in um, dates and, and death tolls and everything. They wanted it to strictly be about how do you feel? Mm. And so this type of dialogue really makes you go, like, okay, stop. I get it. The death toll is, is, is awful. Um, the attacks, awful. Everything, awful. But how do you feel? How does this make you feel? And mm. we, we were taught compassionate listening. And so this program, Tomorrow's Woman, was an amazing program that really allowed you to dig deep within how you feel and being able to say it with no regret, saying like, listen, I feel like this. I'm hurt. I'm angry. And we'd look at each other and I, I would tell an Israeli, like, I'm angry with what you did to my Palestinian people. And she'd look at me and be like, well, I'm angry with you Palestinian people who are committing these stabbings. And, then, and I'd be like, well, I'm angry. And it would just be back and forth. And then we'd go like, and now what? We're angry. Mm. What's the next step? Are we going to stay being mad at each other? Are we going to fix it? We're the next generation. What are we going to do? What's our next step? And that's where the peace building comes in. Oh my God. Whoa. I have like shit. You don't hold back. Yeah. You don't hold back. You say it. And then you say, okay, now what's next? And and I'll I'll also add because in Kids for Peace, you know, we have a, a similar process, um, but we deal with much younger children and our program is Boys and Girls Together. And we also, yeah, spend weeks building trust before we will touch on anything, you know, political identity. When we touch on identity, but I mean like, you know, more national identity, um, because you can't have these conversations without trust. And trust is this not like this finite object that it takes an hour or two hours you know for some people trust can take months for some taking years for some people can open up in five minutes it's, it's really different for, for every person and I think I think you know often when I look at um, the history of peace agreements I know we spoke about that in an earlier episode I remember once reading an interview um, with a with a US foreign secretary who had been you know, involved in all of these peace negotiations and, he, and he, he'd, he'd been doing this for like 10 years. And he said at the end, he said, look, on paper, we agreed on everything. We agreed on the borders. We agreed on the Temple Mount, on the refugees, on the water, on all of these things. So someone asked him, so why didn't you implement the agreement? He said, because no one trusted anyone. Like everyone was sure that the other side was lying and that the leader on the other side wouldn't fulfill their agreement. And so... He said, the reason I couldn't get it, even though we knew the agreement, you know, this was in the early 2000s, um, uh, John Kerry was, was his name, just came to me now. Um, he said, like, even though I knew the agreement, I couldn't get people to sign because, uh, you know, the, there just wasn't trust. And I think, um, and I think, you know, tomorrow's Women and Kids for Peace, we don't advocate for a political solution. Like, we don't have a, a view on the two-state, one-state confederation, anything like that. All we're trying to do is to build trust because that that is such a core ingredient before you can get to any sort of political solution. Mm. Okay, I, I want to come back to this um, and like moving forward in a bit. Um, but I want to talk about 1948. So were your, tell me about what 1948 means to you. Um, 1948 um, to me... Uh, when I hear that number, I automatically think of the displacement of Palestinian people who were living in their homes peacefully within Palestine. Um, uh, my 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 father, um, his family is considered one of the displaced people of 1948, uh, because when I say the term Erkilan, uh in uh, in Jerusalem, people go like, "We've never heard of that family before." That family never been heard of. We were a big group of people. Like Al-Qilan was a huge family. We lived in. Um, my dad's origin is from like Karia. Uh, it's what's today called Kariat Gat, and ironically, it's near the borders of Gaza. It's like near Ashdod and Gaza, so it's like. So we were really close to there, like my dad's family, 
And um, today it's called Qariyat Gat. Back then it was called Qariyat Al-Falujah. Um, and uh, the war happened, of course, um, a lot of them went into Gaza. A lot, a lot of them. And my dad's grandfather and a bit of his family members moved to Jerusalem. And so um, that's where Al-Qilan is like, we say, oh, we're from Jerusalem. And people go like, but we've never heard of it. And then we don't want to have to get into the whole topic of displacement and, you know, Palestinians having to leave their homes and and everything. So, yeah, when I think of 1948, I think of all the families that had to leave. I think of the key because the key resembles like, um, I don't know if you've ever seen like the key in a Palestinian protest or anything. They have a key with them and the key is like, this was the key to what my home once was before I was kicked out. Mm. Before I was told to leave. Mm. So the key is a big, big, mm. big symbol for us. Just like the olive branch. Just like um, just like the kufiye. Um, so yeah, when I think mm. of 1938, uh, 1948, sorry, I think of everything that resembles Palestine. Can you, can you also maybe just explain for our listeners the kufiye? Because we're saying that a lot, obviously in the protests all over the world. Why yeah. is that such an important symbol? So the kufiyah in for Palestinians, um, you know, unfortunately a lot of people when they when they see it, they automatically like at least within Israel, if I were to wear the kufiyah outside, I'd probably go to jail. It would not end nice or I'd get harassed or I'd get beat up. Um, because um, a lot of people look at it as oh someone who wears the kufiyah is a terrorist. But that's not the case. Um, the kufiya for Palestinians is a symbol of resilience. Um, and resilience isn't terrorism. You cannot associate resilience with terrorism. Mm. You know? And um, when, we re- when we wear it, and I remember in Tomorrow's Woman, the same day we decided to talk about the political issues within uh, Israel and Palestine, every Palestinian girl, all eight of us, wore a kufiya. Wow. And an Israeli girl looked at us and she was like, what does that kufiya even mean? And we told her, it's resilience. And she's like, oh, so you want to get rid of us? We're like, no, 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 no. It's resilience to, um, to the idea of, um, or the fact that we had to leave our homes. It's resilience from being um, um, mistreated by um, Israeli soldiers or the Israeli police um, department. It's resilience to occupation. Do you mean, sorry, do you mean resistance or resilience or both? Like resistance is like when you, like you hear a lot of people saying right now, like this isn't terrorism, this is like resisting, resisting the occupation, resisting um, the the violence that Palestinians have had to endure for so many years, but I I mean I kind of like resilience as well because resilience means like you know like something that has kept going despite the odds like you know when you're really down or you like you know you can't go on but you are so resilient and you do you keep going because you're so strong and I I mean I kind of like it's it's, it's both it's, it's both. both yeah it's both. But Isn't it like Samud in Arabic? Samud. Ah, no, no Samud. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. So, yeah. Um, basically, what I'm, uh, so basically, when we wore the kufi and everything, we had to tell them, like, what it meant. And, you know, like, the kufi, like, even the, 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 way it is, the way it's drawn in a certain thing, each of those have a symbol. Like, I, I can't name them right now because, like, one, I don't have the kufi on me. And two, it's like I didn't memorize them. But even that, like to the tiniest detail, something resembles something. There's symbolism within symbolism in Palestinian culture. And that's what makes me so proud to be Palestinian, is the depth that we go to. It's that being a Palestinian means digging deep into your roots. It's starting from the root up. Mm. And it's it's beautiful. I love, I love, I love that I am Palestinian. I love that I'm Arab. I mm. take so much pride in it. Mm. I love that. It's so nice to hear that. I love that you feel that way. And like, it makes me want to cry because I'm so happy that you you feel proud. And I, I am so, oh, yeah. Anyway, I could go on about how I feel all day. 
but um, kind of just for the timeline for me to understand. So your grandfather was um, removed from his home and was um, they relocated to Jerusalem. And then how did you get to America? How did, did he leave to go to America? And then how did you come back and, and why did you come back? So um, basically when uh, my father is the one who went to America, um, him and my mom decided that it would be a good idea to just start fresh somewhere. Um, and I think they left to America in like 1999 because I was born in 1999. So yeah, 1999 is when they they went to the uh they went to the states it wasn't for any political reason it was just a personal reason between my my parents they're like let's go let's start somewhere new my older sister was already born she was nine months old or like a year probably um and next thing you know uh we we went to the states we lived there for about eight years and then my parents thought to themselves i think it's about time we we go back to we go back to palestine and we we raise our kids where you know where their culture like where their culture lies where their religion lies where where who they truly are within blood um is like that's where they should be located and i do not regret for a second being raised in this country despite all odds and trust me there are plenty hannah there are plenty (laughs) you know i'm kind of i'm sure i loved I love the fact that I live that they decided to move here and I tell my dad no matter what how difficult it gets sometimes over here I tell him don't regret it for a second because your daughters are close mm. to their roots they aren't raised outside mm. can you try and explain a little bit more about why you love living in Jerusalem like I, I was having a conversation with Itai the other day about why like why is it so important for him to be in Jerusalem and I mean he can he can speak but what I kind of took from that was because he he loves being Jewish he feels so Jewish and it's like it's amazing to be living in a city where everyone well not everyone but you know his his community you know people around him are Jewish it just feels Jewish the streets stop on Saturday on for Shabbat and um, you know on, on Yom Kippur everything stops and it's like such an amazing feeling for him to just be around other Jews so I and being Jewish myself like I can understand that I relate to that but I want to know from you like what makes being in Jerusalem feel so Palestinian um, and also is it about um, Islam as well or is it is it more the Palestinian cultural, or is it the the religious aspect as well? And like, you know, you what parts of Jerusalem make you feel like that? Like, paint paint a picture of where you go and where you feel most yourself in Jerusalem. So, um, when I think of why I love Jerusalem so much, the first thing that comes into my head is like um, Masjid Al Aqsa, uh, the Dome of the Rock. You know, the golden, the very iconic religious. Um, um, site for uh, Muslim people within uh, all around the world and um, that's the first thing that comes to my mind um, the calligraphy and like the beautiful art of Arabic written on the old on the walls of the old city like sometimes you can still see it even if it's a little bit faded away um, I think what I also love is like the carts of the Ka'ik and the Falafel that's like you know like through like the streets of Salah al-Din. Um, I also think of like the awful drivers <laughs> and like the traffic and the honking. I'm like, ah, my my beautiful annoying Jerusalem, how I love you so. Like, you know, when I when I would travel outside the country and I wouldn't hear cars honking, I'd be like, is there something wrong? <laughs> and then I come back to Jerusalem and, and I like hear all the air like everyone in East Jerusalem just honking their horns for no reason. I'd be like, ah, oh, yes, my people. <laughs> my culture <laughs> we've got a lot in common lana <laughs> <laughs> so i was like yep i'm back home um and i think what i also is like when it comes to religion um i've recently gotten really close to my religion and um you know i wasn't that close before i feel like um i didn't like i was always close by heart but not by action and now i'm doing action as well and it's like it's really it's great what else reminds me of Jerusalem? The old women who are sitting like 
by the street selling fruits and vegetables from their farm and like trying to make a profit out of it. But I think my favorite part in Jerusalem, my favorite place in the whole entire world is the educational bookshop within Salah Din Street. That bookshop has books about everything that you can imagine from like the Palestinian, uh, from the Nakba to the Nakse to Israeli government, Palestinian government, um, the economy of Palestine, the economy of Israel, everything you can imagine. Uh, books, like when my cousins came from the States and I took them to that bookshop, I'm t- I told them, I'm taking you to my holy grail. <laughs> I literally described it like that. I was like, I'm taking you to my holy grail. And they're like, what is it? I was like, it's this bookshop. And my cousin bought like five books and she's like, we don't have these books in the States. And one book like this, like she was also comparing prices and she was like, it's insane. And she was like, and you're, you're, she's like, you're so lucky you have this bookshop. I'm like, okay, first of all, knock on wood. This is my holy grail. If anything happens to it, I will, I will not be happy. And like, I don't look at the books of politics. Like I really go there because they have all my Colleen Hoover books. Big fan. Hilarious. So like, <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> so like that place is everything to me like that's my mini that's my jerusalem within my jerusalem like i love that place Mm -hmm. i love that story because every time i bring visitors to jerusalem who are jewish like they always you know they want to go to the kotel and like you know classic jewish places and i always bring my jewish visitors to the educational bookshop because i was like this is the best place you've got to see it and the owner of the shop, Mahmoud Muna, is like an incredible Palestinian intellectual writer. Yeah. Like I learned so much. I've done panels with him and, you know, I've talked to him. And and my favorite part of the bookshop is if you go in the upstairs section, there's a little cafe. And they've also got, there's a religion section. And there's a book there by Jonathan Sachs, who's like a very well-known Jewish rabbi. And, and you don't expect to see this Jonathan Sachs book in this Palestinian bookshop. And it's a book about the dignity of difference and you know, interfaith and that sort of thing. And it's sitting next to a book by Karen Armstrong, who has written many books about the Prophet Muhammad. And you see these books kind of sitting next to each other. And like, so to me, I, I always show them like, where else in the world do you see, you know, books about Muhammad and, and books by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs on a shelf next to each other while people are eating kayak and zatar and, you know, Palestinian breakfast and the salads and um, and I know some people go there to work on their laptops and some have Arabic classes there and they, they host events there. And yeah, is I it in East Jerusalem? It's in East Jerusalem on Salah Hadin. Yeah. Salah Hadin, for those that don't know, is like if you think of like Jewish Jerusalem, the main road is Rehov Yafo. And yeah. that's, you know, where the light rail is and whatever. So Salah Hadin is like the Palestinian Rehov Yafo. It's like the main street where all the shops are, um, the busiest days of the week, uh, the days, you know, like. When we closed, like when, like say Shabbat, you know, when Rehov Yafo, every single shop is closed, you could go to Salah Adin and everything's open and it's full of people. Whereas on Friday, when Machne Yehuda is packed with everyone shopping for Shabbat, Salah Adin doesn't have a single person on it because, you know, Friday's the... So you really feel like they're almost like... It's the same city, like they're literally two kilometers apart from each other, but like they're almost like on different planets. Um, mm. And then... And then, like in Geula and and Haranof, there's you know Malchai Israel Street, which is like all Haredi, and that's also like another planet. So whenever I have a visitor to Jerusalem, like I always want to show them like Geula, Haranof, Malchai Israel, Yafo, and Salachedin, and that's like the three streets that show you the three different types of Jerusalem. And I think if you come and you just see one, you've only seen a third of the city. Like you haven't gotten. Mm the full picture of what, why I love to live here, you know, why this city is so amazing. So, Hannah, you got to come for a tour. Hannah, <laughs> you should. You honestly should. No, Lana, I know we're going to be friends. Like, we are. We just are. I can already feel it. And, like, that I want to... we're already besties. I know. We're already besties. And, and Put I'm it like, together. I'm like, I have, I'm doing a podcast. I have to ask questions that I know listeners are going to want to hear. But, actually, I just want to get your number and talk to you about, like, so much stuff. So, we're going to do that. Feel free to. Feel free to. <laughs> Honestly, Hannah, I will send all my personal details to Itai. Yeah. And then he'll send them to you. And then we'll start texting each other. We'll become best friends. And, you know, you never know. We might open a podcast between... A, Palestinian, <gasps> uh, like a Jewish. Don't tempt Arab. me with another we podcast. Ha- <laughs> I'm tempting you. I'm tempting you, and it could be really good. We could be the start of something new. Oh my god, don't! I think can't. We're gonna pour Itai. Sorry, Itai. 
<laughs> someone else. Yeah, I'm being replaced with Lana, but I think Lana's awesome, so I'm happy for Lana. Itai's going to join. Itai's yeah. definitely going to join. Okay, yeah, we can, we'll have you on as a guest. It's fine. We'll have you on as a guest. I'll be I'll be your fact checker. Oh, yeah, we need one of them. The yeah, yeah, we can just talk and about our can, feelings yeah. and Itai will just be like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, your feelings are valid. Your feelings are valid. <laughs> Thank you. I, my fragile male ego is is uh, a bit bruised at the moment. I, I think I'll survive. Um, okay. I, I, there are so many questions, and I, I we don't have time for them all. So I want to. I am thinking about my podcast brain and thinking about what what listeners do would want to hear. So let's fast forward a little bit and talk about um, October seven. So do you remember where you were? What, tell me, yeah, take me through your day. So on October 7th, it was, I think, Saturday. It's, it was Saturday, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Saturday morning, yeah. Saturday morning, I woke up uh, and I was supposed to see a friend of mine and he goes like, you need to cancel. And I'm like, why, what's wrong? And he's like, a war broke out. He's like, I'm like, what? And he's like, a war broke out. I'm like, stop playing. That happens every day. What do you mean? What what, what makes this mm. one different? He's like, no, Hamas has entered Israel. <laughs> there is literally danger happening right now in the Kibbutzim near the Gaza Strip. There is literally uh, kidnappings happening in one, two, three. And so I automatically open the news. And keep in mind, what type of news outlets do I look at? As a journalist, I look at everything. You have to have a broad aspect. I look at Palestinian news. I look at Israeli news from far right Israeli to left Israeli and from far right extreme Arabic to me uh, to, um, you know, uh, really leftist Arabic news, whatever you want. I look at it all. I even look at Western media. And the reason why is because it's important. So I started looking and then I was like, oh, OK, this is really bad. I got scared. Even I got scared. I was horrified. Um I mentioned that I'm a big advocate for peace and I don't like I don't agree with war and like when I saw what was happening I was like oh no oh no the backlash that this is gonna have oh no automatically the first thing that happened like that occurred to me when I saw like the videos of like you know there was this really viral video of like a girl that got in the back of like um like one of Hamas's mm, cars it was truck yeah and I yes. remember sh- I just want to say that that girl is Nama Levy. Nama and Levy. she was a graduate of, of the Hands of Peace program. Like, so she herself, she's 19, had been in one of these dialogue programs and actually saw a video uh, last week of some of the Palestinian girls, you know, that had been friends with her from the summer camp, like, calling for her to be released. And it's the only hostage where I've seen, like, you know, a Palestinian video calling for her to be released because of that connection that she had. But that, yeah, that footage of her being dragged into, the, and she's got blood stains all over her pants as well. It's, that it's, horrified yeah. me. Yeah. I remember shivers going down my spine. I was like, what the hell is going on? Mm-hmm. And I remember I was like, oh no, oh no, oh no. And like, I remember I was thinking to myself, I was like, this isn't good. And then automatically the second thing that popped into my head, the people of Gaza, they're going to deal with the consequences mm-hmm. more than Hamas. And you know as a journalist i have to like write down what's like going on in Gaza. i need to like figure out like try to get connections and i think one of the hardest parts and i said this later was having to transcribe these audios of people from Gaza, women um and men crying saying i lost my kid you know the other day i transcribed a woman who said the only thing that i have left with me is my two-month-year-old baby in my stomach my other kids that are literally less than three years old have passed away and my son died and my husband died. And mm-hmm. so imagine listening to that and having to keep repeating to writing word per word, you know, um, make sure that it's like accurately written. And like at for the first time you cry, the second time you tear up, the third time. And then after you keep repeating, you go numb. Mm. And then like you also like. You, you see the videos of like parents screaming in the Knesset saying, I want my kid home. I want my dad home or I want my mom home. Or, you know, like at the end of the day, we forget like these are people. These are people who are losing people they love or are scared of people they love. We forget to look at humanity when war breaks out. We forget us as humans. We automatically go, I choose this side. Okay. You want to stand in solidarity with pe- with your people that's fine. I stand in solidarity with my Palestinian people all the time. 
But what about standing in solidarity with humanity? I always say it. Why? Mm. Why why do we forget that? Mm. So October 7th really put in perspective of how much it's like, how much humanity is so important to us. It is so important that we engrave this into ourselves. It's to be humane. It's to be decent. And that's why I am the way I am. It's because I genuinely believe it. Hmm. Lana, do you feel scared to be like saying this? Because I like even doing this podcast, like I felt really scared at times because the Jewish community in Melbourne, like a lot of people don't feel the same as as me and they don't feel the same as you. Like I think that they would say that they want peace. But I mean, the, the whole reason why we started this podcast is because I have felt like you know, I I feel the same way about you and I've been really thinking about the people in, in Gaza and posting about on, on my Instagram and, um, you know, people have said to me like, oh, you're, you're such a self-hating Jew because you you care more about Palestinians than you care about the, the, the hostages. And, and I don't feel it that way at all. Like I, I feel my heart hurts all the time for feeling so much for both sides but I'm wondering if you feel the same like I'm listening to you say all these things and I'm think do you are you scared about what your family thinks when they hear you say this or your community thinks when you say these things um no I I don't get scared it's it's my opinion I stand with my opinion I stand with it strongly everyone knows that like I stand with the Palestinian people, really, like especially the ones in Gaza, like that are certain. Because like the first thing that went through my head is like, the the innocent civilians in Gaza are the ones who are going to deal with the consequences. And when it comes to the hostages, I'm like, okay, but what did these hostages do to be put in that position? Like, what? Why? Why? You know, like what? What? Like these are these are these are people who are just going on by their days. You know, mm. and I get there's a political reason behind it, but like your political reason backfired for another group of people. And I say this mm. to people and I say, this is my opinion. I'm a person who doesn't like violence or war on either side. I just want to get by my day. I want the people around me to get by their day. What is so what is so wrong about that? If you if people get mad at me for wanting to be a decent human being, then that's a problem within them. That means they have a certain issue, not me. If I'm a person who cares and that who advocates for like nonviolence and wants things to like just run smoothly, but also believes in the liberation of Palestinian uh, people and also wants both like Jews and Palestinians to just live in peace because I have like, I have Jewish friends, I have Israeli friends, you know, and I love them and they love me. Why can't I just live in with them and like not have this sort of hatred or tension? You know, so if that makes me a shitty person, excuse me for my profanity, or it makes me an um, insensible type of human being because I'm not only standing in solidarity with one side, then honestly, I think there's a problem with you because why do you not, why are you not being a decent human being? Like, where's your humanity? I have it. Mm. I'm showing it. Where's yours? Because it's people mm. like you that's making the problem even bigger. It's people mm. like you who are dragging that little bit of hope that we have for peace left to the floor. It's that mm. mindset. And it's my mindset, and I know it's my mindset, that's giving that hope a little bit more than it should be. And I'm proud to have that. I'm not sure if you've been seeing the pro-Palestinian movements that are happening all around the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am. What do you when what do you feel about them? Because a lot of them are not people not saying that like they're they're there saying like resistance now at by any means like this is the time to like rise up. Not a lot of people are talking about like Hamas and they're they're talking about the Palestinian people and they've been oppressed for so long and and I fully like agree with that. But one of the things I found difficult is that these pro-Palestinian rallies don't call for peace in the way that you're calling for peace. So I guess my question is, what what do you think about these movements? And do you think that they reflect what Palestinian wants? Obviously, you can't speak on behalf of all Palestinians, but maybe I'll just ask the question to you. Do, do those pro-Palestinian rallies reflect what you want? That's a good question. Uh, I could say yes and no. The reason why I would say yes is because 
Palestinian, like our voices being heard. It's literally a cry. Like when I look at those pro-Palestinian protests, it's a cry for help for the Palestinian people in Gaza. It's a cry for help. And it's, it's basically saying like, listen, they're there. They exist. Help them, you know, put a ceasefire to it. When they say ceasefire now, it's because it's like, we're done. Like enough, like the death toll is rising. It's insane. It needs to stop. You know, having having that type of voice is like having the world look at us and say, we're here. Hey, we see you. Um, feels liberating inside. It, it's a sense of relief. However, in the aspect of another thing is that what I don't, what I'm worried about with these protests is that there, there has been a rise in anti-Semitism. And that kind of concerns, that doesn't kind of, it really does concern me. Even though there are a lot of Jewish people who are standing in those pro-Palestinian protests and say, okay, that doesn't resemble me as a Jew. What's happening to the Palestinian people does not resemble me as a Jew. And um, I really think, um, I really hope that when these pro-Palestinian protests go on, they address the fact that we do not agree with what Hamas did. I feel like it needs to address that more because a lot of media outlets are saying that these pro-Palestinian um, protests that are breaking out is in support of Hamas. And it's like, I think we need to clarify a little bit more about these pro-Palestinian, because I'm, I'm a journalist. I read I read what these what news outlets are saying about these protests. And it's like, hey, let's let's clarify a couple of things here and there. Like in these protests, clarify why you're doing this protest like go more into depth and don't be afraid to mention like hey we don't agree with what Hamas did either we just want people the people within Gaza to like like innocent civilians stop being bombed or killed or you know and you know don't be afraid to mention that like label it say it like I think they need there should be a little bit of clarification in that aspect why do you think they don't because I feel like they're so angry I feel like they're just so angry, like, and I, I'm angry too. I'm very angry. I'm, I'm pissed. Mm. But I feel like because we, we've allowed our anger to like take over a bigger toll of us, and those emotions have just so, like overpowered us, like as Palestinians so much, we forget to look at like the other side. They, they only like are focusing on like, hey. These people, they need to get saved. They need liberation. Like that's what's dominating their emotions and their like their mindset right now. Mm. And and I just want to add something on the on the protest. So I know there's obviously a lot of Zionist protests with you know messages like Amisrael Chai and and free the hostages. And there's the Palestinian protests with free Palestine from the river to the sea. Um, I know in London there's been a few. They don't call them protests. They call them vigils by a group called Together for Humanity. And I I really want to give them a shout out. I think people should look up there their page because what they've been doing is in their vigils for peace they don't have any flags no israeli flags no palestinian flags and they have um Magen Inon, who is a bereaved uh israeli um he, both his parents were killed on october 7th and mira awad who's very prominent uh palestinian citizen israel musician uh, robbie damlin and they've had uh the archbishop of canterbury has come to some of these and they, they come together as Jews, Christians, and Muslims and and call for peace. They call for releasing the hostages. They call for um, you know, ending the, the, the attacks on, on and bombing of Gaza. And, and I think that's so important to do that together because ultimately, you know, if you want peace, you can't only be calling out one side. And anyone that thinks that only one side is the problem here um, is not is not calling for peace. Um, you know, we we need this is a two side thing. Now, yes, obviously, I I'm even saying this is an Israeli. Clearly, Israel is the more powerful side. I'm not saying it's two equal sides. Like I'm aware of the size of our military and the size of our power is nowhere near the size of the military or, or power of, of of Palestine. So I understand why the focus is on on Israel much more. But I also think that any solution has to you know address the the misdeeds of both sides obviously the occupation obviously dismantling hamas you know terrorism you know all all of those sorts of things and i think i think that's where i'm coming from and i think that's where lana's coming from and i think that's a voice that you don't hear from many israelis and palestinians let alone in the diaspora let alone in australia where no vigils like this have happened but i think that's what 
that's what needs to happen. That's what needs to to, to go forward. That's what I I want to see happening on the on the streets on Flinders Street on a, on a Sunday morning. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I guess that that's is that's what I've been missing. I think because. Like I, I, I've said on the podcast before, like I really want to go to these like free Palestine rallies because I believe in that. I like with my whole body, I believe in that. But something that I feel like is missing is that it's like, but where's the peace talk here? Like where is the, I see the pain that so many Jews are feeling right now. I see the pain of so many Israelis who don't want Israel to be looking the way it does. Like there are these people that exist and I feel like without bringing them along too, like it's not going to be peace. Like there's there's just too much, like it's still in the black and white. And, you know, in order to have peace, there needs to be sitting in the gray area, which, I mean, I'm just like so blown away by how much you're in that, in that gray area. Like, I just, do you think that you're in the minority or do you think that so, like, are your friends like this? Are your family like this? Like, what do you think people in East Jerusalem, would they be like you too? I honestly, I have a mixture of friends. Like I have friends that are like, um, you know, uh, strictly like one-sided Palestinian, one-sided. I have friends who are a lot like me. And then I have friends who are extremely um, Israeli, rightist as well, and like center. I I mix myself with different people on purpose because I want to understand each one's side. I want to know what each one thinks. Mm. I want to understand them. And at the same time, it's like, I want you to understand me too. And like, let's look at it from two different narratives. So I don't expect people to think the way I do. I don't, I don't expect it. I wish they would, like, I wish there were people who like advocated for peace and advocated to live in solidarity and, and, and to like be decent human beings. You know, I wish, I, I really do. But I think from here till something like that happens, it's going to take a while. But it doesn't mean we should lose hope. I don't, I'm not losing hope. I feel like everyone has the capacity to be doing this. Like every single person has the capacity to do this. I know. Can I just say, you know, as someone that's been facilitating the conversation that we're having now, I've been doing this for the last six years at Kids for Peace, we have very, very few people in our organisation. And, and even if you add Kids for Peace and Tomorrow's Women and Seeds of Peace, like all these organisers, maybe we've got a few thousand kids doing this every year. Like it's not, it's a drop in the ocean. You know, compare that to... The scouts or to the you know to the bigger groups here like mm. it's, it's, it's a fraction and I think a lot of people have a lot of fear of this a lot of fear of if I you know like I speak to, to Jewish kids and I tell them to come to kids for peace in Jerusalem and they say what if they're terrorists what if they'll harm me what if they will mm. question the IDF and then you know I speak to Palestinians and go how could I it's normalization that's beer you know I can't I can't meet with my occupier and we can't just eat hummus together when, you know, all of this is happening. And I, I'm very sensitive to those arguments and look, Kids for Peace hasn't operated at all since, since October 7th for that exact reason, because it's too, it's too hard for us to meet. But I also think that like the dialogue that, that we're having now on this podcast and that happens in these peace programs to me is the only way forward. Like I don't have any faith in politics at the moment. I think our, our politics is so, so broken. I don't have any faith in external forces. I don't want America or the UAE or Saudi Arabia or Egypt or I don't want anyone to force us to, like, we are adults. Like, we need to talk. We don't need some other person in the room saying, well, you're good, you're naughty, we'll give you aid. We, you know, like, no, like, we need to talk. This is our country. We need to share it. And, like, we need to we need to say, Khalas, like, enough, like, enough of the blood enough of the fighting enough of the killing like we need to apologize for each other we need a truth and reconciliation committee and and that happens from getting to know one another and i feel like at the moment we're really small like the peace building community in jerusalem is tiny like i'm not pretending that my views are representative of israelis i know from polling they're not um but i want this is what i believe for the future of this of, of jerusalem a, a city that's you know obviously holy to three religions like the only way for us to share this is, is to grow up knowing that it's not exclusively mine. And as soon as you, and, and that's painful for a lot of people because we have a lot of religious and nationalistic reasons to feel like this has to be exclusively mine. Um, but 
that just you know if we don't share this land we're just going to share graveyards together and i don't want to mm-hmm. i don't want to share graveyards and that's what peace building is is trying to achieve and i know this sounds like crazy and naive you know me saying this in the middle of a war where where thousands of people are losing their lives but that's that's really like the only way forward mm-hmm. lana do you feel the same i do i do and i think i got the biggest goosebumps right now when he said if we don't share land we're going to share, share graveyards like ouch like honestly that that would make like that that makes me want to cry hmm. i heard that line it's not my line i heard it actually from rami and bassam they're two bereaved uh, israeli and pal- palestinian parents and with plus six one j you know we brought them out to australia and and rami would and bassam would say that line in every talk they gave and like i i just that's i don't want that to be us i think we're so much better than that Oh, I think we should leave it there. Lana, I can't wait to be your friend. We're going to WhatsApp. I can't wait. I just, I have so much love for you already over a (laughs) little Zoom screen. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this and coming on and people are going to hear your voice and I'm so happy that they will. I'm going to say if people want a part two, we'll do a part two. I feel like we need to do a part two. We will gladly do a part two. I think like we could do a part 600, like this could yeah. be a very, <laughs> a very long conversation. But yeah, I just want to, I mean, Lana, we know each other for many years, but, um, you know, I think you're, you're amazing. And it's, it's great that you could meet, you know, my friend Hannah. And, and I think, you know, the thousands of people we know that listen to this podcast, I hope that they, they learn a lot from you. And we'll also put um, in, the, in the show notes some extra articles about some of the things that we've spoken about and, Anyone that has any questions for me or for Hannah or for Lana, um, you can send us an email at fromtheyarra at gmail.com and we do our best to answer most of the many, many emails we get. Um, and yes, yeah, so Mamasha, shukran kutil. Thank you very much. Walao, walao, afwan. Yeah, yeah, pick it up. Walao, afwan.